rape that God didn't stop, the abuse that went on for years, the spouse who is slowly dying of cancer before our eyes, the parent who doesn't recognize you anymore, dementia, the pain in your body that, that won't go away and that no doctor can shed any comforting light on, the loss of a child, the suicide of a loved one, reports that people are starving to death around the world, diseases that, that ravage entire nations, natural disasters that wipe out towns and villages, holocausts, genocides, many even carried out in the name of God. And as we live through these kinds of atrocities, whether they be near or far, our heart can be tempted to grow cold. We can be tempted to look to the heavens and to say, where is God? Who, who does He think He is to deal with us like this? What kind of answer will He give to me for my sufferings and the sufferings of those that I love? For what He's done to me, for what He's done to us. And there's nothing quite like pain and affliction and suffering that can make us feel justified in our anger toward God. We feel like that we have the right, if at no other time, now, we feel like we have the right to demand answers. We feel like God owes us some sort of explanation for all of the hurt and all of the, the tear-soaked nights that we have endured. We feel like we're entitled to raise our fists at God and demand these answers. And this response does, does not just come from atheists or agnostics or skeptics. It also comes from people who believe deeply in God. Some of us have most certainly felt this way. This is the way that, that Job felt when God brought great suffering into the life of a man who didn't seem to deserve it. I'm going to ask that you would join me in the book of Job, chapter 32. Job, chapter 32. If you didn't bring a Bible, it'll help you to have one open this morning. We're going to be on page 438 of the Bibles that are provided in front of you. Page 438, you should be able to find one there in the pew rack in front of you. Job chapter 32, and we'll be looking at chapters 32 through 37. We won't read them all verse by verse, but that's where our message will come from this morning. In case you're just joining us in this series and you've never heard of Job before, this is a true story of, of this man named Job, who in the first two chapters, we see that he is a, he's a good man. He's not a perfect man, but God himself says that he's blameless and upright, that he fears God, that he turns away from evil. But God strangely in chapter 1 gave Satan, the devil, 
permission to afflict Job. And Satan, who poses our friend, always proves to be our enemy, did just that to Job. He afflicted him greatly. He took from him his family, his fortune, his fame, brought great calamity upon Job with the permission of God. And then again, with God's permission, Job was afflicted by Satan with with physical suffering, sores from head to toe. And as we watch all this happen to Job, we wonder, what's what's he going to say? How's he going to respond? How would I respond if that happened to me? And we marvel, because his initial responses are, are marked by faith. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then later on he says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil or calamity and disaster? In all this Job did not sin with his lips. That's all in the first two chapters of the book. But as we read on, after his initial response of of worship, we see that things begin to take a bit of a different turn. In Job 3 and and following up, up through chapter 31, we have three rounds of counseling, as it were. Three rounds of conversations between Job and three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And in those conversations, Job's friends have said some glorious things about God, but they've also said some things that weren't true. They've accused Job of having some kind of secret sin that God is punishing him for. They say, the reason all this has happened to you, Job, is because you're hiding something in your life, and God's punishing you for that. And Job argues back, and he proclaims his innocence through the whole conversation. He says, I'm innocent. And he says that because he's innocent before God, it makes no sense. Because God, he says, has now made me his enemy. By chapter 31, the conversations have kind of fizzled out. And that's where we find ourselves today, where a new character that we haven't heard about before comes onto the scene. His name is Elihu. Elihu. And he speaks from chapter 32, 1, all the way to chapter 37, verse 24. This whole section. He gives four speeches. And what Elihu's going to say, because we're not going to look at all four of the speeches. We're going to kind of look at the heart behind what he's saying. In these speeches, Elihu says, listen, y'all, you are both wrong. Job's friends, Job isn't suffering because of some kind of secret sin. And Job, just because you're suffering, it doesn't mean that you're God's enemy. Elihu's message through all of this is going to be that, that no matter what we face, we are never justified at raising our fists to God. Because God has greater purposes in our suffering that require us to trust Him and to endure in the midst of pain going to kind of unpack all of that as we we consider Job chapter 32 through 37. We're going to start by first number 1 asking who is Elihu? So who is this guy? Well, look at chapter 32 verses 1 through 5. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. 
He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Verse 3, he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these friends, he burned with anger. So we're not sure where Elihu comes from, really. I mean, well, we see a buzz out there, and we'll talk about that in a second, but we don't know how, when he got there. So he, he may have seen these three friends rolling into town, found out what was going on, and went out to, to hear this conversation. He may have gone out there to the ash heap, which was, again, the, kind of the, uh, the landfill in the nation where they burned trash, where Job was sitting. He may have gone out there to kind of drop off some trash and seen these, this strange sight and went over to, to find out what's, what's going on here. We, we're not really sure. The little that we know about Elihu, we know here from his, his genealogy. If you look there again at 32.2, he's the, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, of the family of Ram. Now, Buzzite. Okay, so Genesis chapter 22, we see that Abraham had a brother named Nahor. So Abraham, the father of the Jews, he had a brother named Nahor who had two sons, Uz and Buzz. All right? I'm sure junior high was rough for them, but Uz and Buzz. Okay? Now, in, in chapter 1... We see that Job is from the land of Uz. So Uz must have gone somewhere, settled, made a town. That's where Job grew up. And we see here that Elihu is from the family of Buzz. Okay? So this is why many people think that the story of Job took place sometime around Abraham, Isaac, Jacob days. All right? So we're going to roll with that. Also, we see here that Elihu, um, he was a young guy. He already said that there in verse 4, but if you look at verse 6 of chapter 32, he says, I am young in years and you are aged. He's speaking, the you is plural. He's talking to the the friends. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. So Elihu, we know he's the youngest of the group, and he's waited until now to speak up. Because he has respect for his elders, which is a really good, just a little side note, in a day where we have lost this, and there's not respect before those who, who have gone on before us, I think we can learn from this man here. He shows a, a good lesson, that he waits for and allows the, the older people to, to speak and to hear wisdom first. Well, Elihu is young. Second of all, I'm not sure if you picked up on it, but dude's angry, okay? Elihu was angry. I mean, he says it four times in these first five verses that he was angry. But what we're going to notice is that this isn't a sinful kind of anger, but it's an anger similar to to the righteous anger that the Lord Jesus had whenever he flipped the tables of the corrupt money changers in the temple in Jerusalem. And Elihu, it says here that he's angry with Job's friends because, verse 3, they had found no answer, although they declared Job to be in the wrong. In verse 5, he saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men. So he's angry because they want to give a bunch of, of answers, but they don't have any. They just got accusations. And they've also mis, misinterpreted God's hand. And they've misrepresented God. They, they don't have a category for a God who is, who is a tender shepherd, who uses affliction to shape and to mold his children into deeper holiness. They portray God only as being this just, punitive, almost a, yeah, 
just a punitive God, void of, of, of grace. And that, that angers Elihu. But he's also angry, not just at Job's friends, but he's angry there at Job. Again, verse 1. Why? Because he was righteous in his own eyes. And verse 2, and this is kind of key to everything this morning, because he justified himself rather than God. Elihu is angry at Job because this guy's got the guts to claim and to keep on claiming all the way through these chapters that he's in the right in a way that implies God must be in the wrong for the way that he is bringing suffering on him. And Elihu says, listen, buddy, you have justified yourself at God's expense. You've claimed that he's not your faithful father, but that he is an angry judge. All because you've been upright before him. And you can't figure out why this affliction is happening to you. He says this is both dangerous and presumptuous for for people to ever accuse the eternal, all-knowing God of being unjust. It's a form of pride that puts us at odds with God. And he saw it in Job, and it made Elihu angry. So, he was a young guy, he was an angry guy, and he's also an answer guy. So, Elihu, in the midst of this, he's going to say he's got, he's got answers. Job's friends have ceased speaking, but Elihu says he will not do that. If you look down at 32.15, uh, he, says, he says, They are dismayed, they answer no more, they have not a word to say. And shall I wait? Because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more, I will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like that wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Like Jeremiah the prophet, he says, I've got to fire my bones. I've been sitting here watching you jokers go back and forth with no answers because I've, I've got to say something here. And though he says it's his opinion, in chapter 36, verse 2, he says, I have something to say on God's behalf. He's going to claim to be speaking on God's behalf. But, as we all know, you can't just take some quack who says he's talking on God's behalf at his word. So we, we've got to ask the question. Can we trust Elihu's message? Okay, so first, who is Elihu? That's who he is. Well, can we trust his message? Now, the reason I went ahead and put this here is because if you've been with us through the series, you've seen Job's other friends answer in a way that in the end gets them rebuked by God. So some of us may say, oh, here's another friend. This guy, this guy's probably going to be off too. So can we trust him? Well, some scholars say that we we shouldn't, but I, I think that we should. I think we should view Elihu differently. He's going to say some very sharp things. And he's going to say some odd things. But let me give you three reasons why I think we should trust him. And then we're going to get into what it is that he says to us this morning. The first is because Elihu's words here, they're presented as something new. He, he, he brings a fresh perspective. In 32.14, he says, He, meaning Job, has... Uh, not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. He says, listen, I've been sitting here, and Job hadn't said a word to me, 
But now I'm going to answer him. But I'm not going to use the line of reasoning that you guys have been using with him. I'm not with you guys on this one. You've spoken foolishly. I've got something fresh. And this is fitting for this, this genre of, of wisdom literature. Okay, Because you've got the supposedly wise guys. These, these three aged men who kind of know so much. They've spoken and they've exhausted their supposed wisdom. But then... At the end, the least likely person to help out at all comes on the scene, this young guy, and he is going to give clarity before God comes and speaks. So his words are presented as something new, but here's kind of the two bigger ones. Number two, the reason we should trust his message is because Job, he doesn't argue with Elihu. Job doesn't argue with him at all. Now, if you've been following along, Job has been pretty combative with his other buddies. He has answers for all of them, but he doesn't for Elihu. Actually, if you look at the end of chapter 33, Elihu even asks for it. Uh, Chapter 33, verse 32, he says, If you have any words, answer me, Job. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. And Job doesn't answer him. He's answered every other friend, but he doesn't answer Elihu. Why? I think it's because he agrees with him. I think Job agrees with what Elihu says. And in the end, Job is going to repent. And he certainly repents because God shows up and speaks to him. But I think we should see Elihu here as kind of a Elijah-like John the Baptist-like forerunner who comes in with some truth and kind of tills up the soil of Job's heart so that when God comes and speaks, it lands on soft ground. I think that's the way we're supposed to see him here. So Job doesn't argue with Elihu. And then thirdly and finally, before we get into what he said, God doesn't rebuke Elihu. God's rebuking everybody in this thing. I mean, at the end, I mean, he brings it. Next week, you're going to see Job, uh, Job is going to get it handed to him. God's going to say, he's going to say, pull it up, buddy. We're about to go. Gird up your loins like a man. Okay, we'll talk about what that means next week. But he's, he's going to lay it on him. Well, he does the same thing with his friends. But God does not rebuke this guy. He doesn't rebuke Elihu. And I think the reason is because what he says is mostly right. I think he speaks truth. Okay, so that's who he is. That's why we should probably trust what he's saying here. So then what did Elihu teach? What what did he say? What's the message that Job needed to hear in the midst of his suffering while he had his fist raised up at God saying, why'd you do this to me? Why are you treating me like an enemy? What does he have to say to Job and what does he have to say to us? And again, behind all of this message is that chapter 32 verse 2 that Elihu burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Job has pointed his finger at God, and he has said things he shouldn't have said. And Elihu is going to rebuke him here. Now, we need to make a really important distinction between Elihu and Job's friends. This this is not original with me. I got this from a commentator. I think it's really helpful. He, He says this. The friends, the other three guys, have said that Job was suffering because he had sinned. The other three friends said that Job was suffering because... He had sinned. Elihu's not going to say that. But what he is going to say 
is that Job has sinned in the midst of his suffering. Job has sinned in the midst of his suffering. While all of this pain is coming on Job, he's going to say things that he should not have said. That's going to bring him into the wrong before God. So this is, this is what the distinction is between Elihu and the other buddies. All right. So what, so what did he say to, to Job? Look again with me here at chapter 33 now. Chapter 33, verse 1. He says, But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to my words. Verse 5. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Now verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. So he says, I've been sitting here listening to you, Job, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to quote you. So verse 9 through 11 is a quote from something that Job said. So chapter 33, verse 9. You say, Job, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he, meaning God, finds occasions against me. He, God, counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. He said, Job, if I'm going to summarize everything that I've heard from you while I've been sitting here listening, you're boasting about your purity, and you're proclaiming that God is your enemy. You're talking a lot about your purity, and you're talking a lot about how God is your enemy. And that's, that's true, because he's, he's quoting right here from chapter 13. So I'm going to read something from chapter 13. It says, 13.23, Job says, How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make known my transgression and my sin. He's talking to God. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? You have put my feet in the stocks. So that's exactly what Elihu's quoted. Then on in chapter 19, and these are, by the way, just a few samplings of these things that Job has said. He said this all the way through. Job 19.11. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. That's what Job says about God. Then on in chapter 30, verse 21, that we saw a couple weeks ago. He says to God, you have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. If you've ever been around somebody who suffers, those are not uncommon words at times to hear. Job has repeatedly declared that he is pure, but that God has declared war on him as his enemy. And Elihu says in chapter 33, verse 12, In this you are not right. You're wrong, Job. You've said things you shouldn't have. Job has sinned while he's suffering because he's implied that God has acted unjustly toward him. And he says that's the case because he has been so pure. He says, it's basically he's saying God owes me better treatment than what I've been getting. And I at least deserve some kind of explanation. I mean, chapter 13, verse 3, he said, I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. That's Job speaking. That's crazy talk, but he's doing it. Then 23, 3, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him, and fill my mouth with arguments. He would pay attention to me, and I would be acquitted before my judge forever. 
Job has pridefully challenged God about why all this is happening to him. He's trying to justify himself. He can't understand why this pain and this suffering is coming upon him. So he's trying to justify himself. And he's doing it at God's expense. He puts God in the chair and says, you've been wrong. And that is what Elihu got angry about. 32.2, he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Job has raised his finger to the face of his heavenly father, and he said, you've done me wrong. And Elihu says, you are not right. Now let me give you an illustration to kind of show you what I think has been happening to Job in the midst of all of this. So chapters 1 and 2, we see Job sitting there. And I like you, I don't have one, but I you a picture of a, a big jug, a clear glass uh, bottle of water. And it looks just crystal clear and pure. Okay? In chapters 1 and 2, that's how Job's heart is pictured. Job, Job's pictured as a blameless man right before God. But what has happened now is all this suffering has come upon Job, and initially he responds in faith and in worship to God. But then, over the course of chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, and all the way up through chapter 31, this long, drawn-out conversation with his friends, what's happened is that his heart has begun to be shaken. And what we find is that at the bottom of what appeared to be a blameless heart was mud. And what's happened in the shaking is it has stirred up the mud of abiding sin that, that is in everybody, aside from the, the only person who's never had abiding sin is the Lord Jesus. And, and Job's heart begins to swirl, and it's, it's, it's now becomes polluted, as it were, with the abiding sin. The, the concept, or the the, um, the situation, the circumstances have pressed on him and it's shaken him to show what's already there. It's, it's like when I moved from Texas, Graham, Texas, a town of 10,000 people, we had like three stoplights. I was the most patient driver in the world. I get up here, I get behind people, I lose my mind. I am an impatient, mean driver in my heart. I try not to do it. Um, out loud and hurt anybody or anything like that. But I feel that. I go crazy. I didn't all of a sudden become impatient. What has happened is circumstances have now pressed on me in a way that starts showing things that are already there. And that is what has happened to Job. That as Job's friends have spoken to him and accused him, the glass heart of his jar has been shaken and it's caused the mud of abiding sin to swirl around and cloud his heart and come out of his mouth. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Job has been defiled because of what he said. He was not a sinless man. He was repentant, walked by faith, as best as a, as best as a, a sinful human can. But here, in the pressure, he has spoken too highly about himself, and in this way, too lowly about God. And that's really the heart behind Elihu's four speeches. That Job has sinned against God by justifying himself at God's expense. And again, this is really important for us to hear. Because if there is ever a time that we feel tempted 
to justify ourselves before God, it's when we are in pain. We feel like God should treat us better. I didn't do what everybody else did. I waited like you told me to. I didn't cheat like everybody else cheated. I did what you told me to do. I went to church. I, did, I got baptized. I, I did what you told me to do. I've taken a step toward the mission field like you told me to do. I've pursued ministry like, like you told me to do. I've stayed in this marriage like you told me to do. And deep down, we think that he should treat us better. He should not allow pain, at least not this much pain. What pain does is it, it, it wears us down. I remember a conversation that I had with a spouse who was suffering with was watching their spouse suffer with, with cancer. And they recounted to me the way that, that they had watched their mother and their father die agonizing slow deaths. And now they have to watch their spouse do the same thing. And you could see how it had, it had hardened their heart against God. And they said that. They said, I don't understand why God would, would do this to the people that I love and to make me watch it. It was confusing. I, I, I mean, I sit there, and I'm, I'm supposed to be the answer man. I know answers. I don't. Pain wears us down. But what we've got to know, if, if you're like that spouse who's watching these things happen, you've got to know, and this is not just the right answer, but you've got to know that you can trust God. that no matter how agonizing or confusing, you need to know that God never does evil. He never does evil. He ordains and orchestrates every bit of pain in our lives, and there are deep mysteries that come with that, and we've talked about that in earlier messages. And you can bring your questions to Him, and oh, there are so many questions. But we must never accuse Him of doing wrong. This is true, and we know it's true, ultimately, because of what he's done for us in Jesus. And we see the most horrific event that has ever happened in all of history is that the Creator, the Son of God, would come to the earth, and that he would live among the creation, and that he would serve, and that he would love, and he would heal the blind, he'd make deaf people hear, and he'd make lame people walk, and he would care for those who were afflicted, and he would patiently abide with sinners, and he would, he would dine with, with prostitutes and tax collectors and all those that the religious people had cast out. And then he would put up with religious people and all their mess. And then he would willingly go to a cross and there on the cross die. And on that cross, the most evil thing that has ever happened in all of history occurred. The creation crucified its creator. Humanity turned against God and nailed him to a cross and said, we will not have you rule over us. They said, we have no king but Caesar, and in our lives we testify we have no king but us. We're all in that lot. 
But God would take the most evil thing that has ever happened in all of history and he would put his son in a grave and three days later he would bring him out of the grave and he would promise now not, watch, I'm going to just take him to be with me and all of you get what you deserve in wrath, but rather, if you will turn from your rebellions, all that wrath that fell on him, I will take it off of you and I will give you his righteousness. I will give you mercy. I will forgive your sins and you can join him with me forever. If God can do that with the most evil thing that has ever happened in history, I promise you, no matter how weighty what you're facing is this morning, we can know that God is a good God that can be trusted. And his disciples had no clue what was happening. when his, there's, I mean, Jesus is being nailed to the cross. He's about to be gone for three days. They're weeping. They're hiding out upstairs. They're like, what's happened? Thomas says, I won't... I, I won't believe it unless I see it when they heard that he raised from the dead. So there's times where we don't know what's happening. But what we must not do is raise our finger at God and say, you are wrong. Because we don't know the whole story yet. No matter what we face, we have no right to ever accuse God of doing any wrong. No matter what we face, we have no right to ever accuse God of doing any wrong. His ways are above our ways. And Elihu corrected Job on this. If you look over chapter 34, verse 5, he quotes Job again. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted as a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. And Elihu says, What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in the company with evildoers, and walks with wicked men? For he has said, It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Verse 10, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty, that he should do wrong. Verse 12, Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. God never does wrong, Job. He does confusing things, all kinds of confusing things. There's even a verse in the Bible, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's all kinds of things that are confusing. But he does no evil. Never. And then he, he gives the strongest rebuke, chapter 34. And some have made this want to lump Elihu in with the other friends, but I, I don't think we should. So chapter 34, verse 35, he says, Job speaks without knowledge, his words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies words against God. And then down in verse 16 of chapter 35, Job opens his mouth in empty talk and multiplies words without knowledge. I don't think we should read this as Elihu saying that Job had done sin to get God angry at him. I, I, don't, think that's, I don't think that's what he's saying. Rather, I think he's saying in the midst of his suffering, he keeps on talking. And the more he keeps talking, he's heaping on sin, on his rebellions. He's showing that his heart's not right before God in this right here. He's sinning against God. He's justifying himself at God's expense. 
And that's why Elihu says in chapter 32, verse 12, you are not right. Look back at 32.12 for a second. I know we've been jumping all over the place. It's just one of those messages. 33.12, I mean, sorry, 33.12. 33.12. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? Job says, God won't speak and he won't give me answers. And Elihu says, yes, he will. Look at 34, or, I'm sorry, 33, 14. For God speaks in one way and in two. That's just a Hebrew way of getting to say that God speaks in two ways. God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. He's going to say, God, God is speaking in two ways. The ways are going to be dreams, where he alerts the conscience. And pain. Now, these two ways of dreams and pain, which we're going to talk about here in just a second, you've got to remember, as I just said at the beginning, that there's good reason to believe that Job lived before Moses was on the earth. And because of that, didn't have scripture written down. So the way they hear from God is if a prophet comes on the scene, or God gives a dream or a vision, or if God brings pain to alert the conscience to their need for help. Okay? Now, we have the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit uses them to help us interpret things that we experience. So God does many of these same things still today, but Job didn't have the scriptures in the way that we do. That's why we can, we can see them and interpret them differently and, and fully. Okay? So let's look at these two ways. First, 33.15, because Job said, God's not answering me. And Elihu says, hold up, he is answering you. 33.15, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that they may turn aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man, or a better rendering is keep him back from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. God's, or Job, Job is told here by Elihu, listen, God, sometimes he speaks through dreams. And if you remember back in chapter 7, verse 14, Job said of God, you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. So this has happened to Job. Now why would God do that? A very gracious reason. He says there in verses 15 through 18, it's to alert people of their pride. Elihu says, God wants to keep you from deadly pride. So he's alerting your conscience through a dream that something's wrong. Romans 2 says, all of our consciences are alerted. This is by the so if you're not a Christian here this morning, and you feel guilty for things, like even if you came here just out of guilt, like don't brush that off. It's gracious gift of God to alert you that something's off in your life. Don't push that away. But God has and still does these miraculous types of interventions like dreams and visions at times to alert people's consciences, and he does it to Job here. Now, we could talk a whole lot more, and I know visions and dreams are interesting, but that's not the main thing he focuses on, so let's look at the next one. Verse 19, 
chapter 33, 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite, the choicest food. His flesh is wasted away. It cannot be seen. His bones stick out. He's speaking here of of, of pain that comes on somebody so much that they don't want to eat anything and they're just losing all kinds of weight and they're just laying in bed. God says, sometimes I use pain to rebuke you. And, and not necessarily for sin that you've done to get you into that sick bed. Please hear that. Because if we dismiss that, we're dismissing everything that we've heard so far in Job. But in the sick bed, even if you went there in your strongest day, and you're laying there, if you've been sick before, you know what starts to come out of you. And it's in the midst of that pain that God graciously illumines hearts. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis speaks of how God does this gracious work. He says this, The human spirit will not even begin to surrender as long as all seems to be well. I don't need God. Everything's great. We can rest contentedly in our sins when all is well. But every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. Pain insists upon being attended to. That's such a good line. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is given by God to wake us up because nothing wakes you up like pain. It's one of God's mercies toward us. Lewis calls it a severe mercy that alerts us to the fact that we need him more deeply than we ever thought we could have needed him. And it's often through pain that we are made aware of abiding sin. Chapter 33, 19. Man is rebuked with pain upon his bed. God rebukes and corrects and alerts us through pain. It's for our good. Then look down at the same chapter, 33, 26. Elihu goes on and he says, In the midst of this pain, the man prays to God and God accepts him. And that's, that's the goal, is that he would, he would cry out to God, God, I see this in my heart. As this pain's coming on me, I see it coming out of me. Chapter 33, 29, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me, be silent, and I will speak. He says, Job, Listen, God uses pain to awaken us, doesn't he, Job? Have you not seen your need of him more in these days of suffering, Job? Has not God done this for you? Job, it is not true that you're suffering because you've sinned. But it is true that as you've been suffering, you have said sinful things. And God is using pain to expose that in you, that abiding sin that's been stirred up by your circumstances. I want you to look over at 3615. And again, we're, I'm just 
we're not reading all these verses, encourage you to, to read them. But I want you to see in 36.15, a verse that I, just, I spent time last night just meditating on. This verse is gold. 36.15. He, meaning God. So, so real quick before that. In, in 36, in, in chapter 7, God's eyes are on the righteous. Sometimes they're kings. And then verse 8, sometimes they're bound in chains and have cords of affliction. So sometimes the righteous are exalted and protected, but sometimes they're afflicted. And now in verse 15, he says, He, meaning God, delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. Think about that for a moment. God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. Are, are you afflicted this morning as a child of God? When, then know this. And when we who were born again through faith in Christ find ourselves weak and broken and humbled under God's afflicting hand, we know a special kind of grace that we don't taste other times. And we know that it's a delivering grace. And this is really important. Please, hear this. The delivering grace, when it says here that He delivers the afflicted by their affliction, it's not always the delivering out from our afflictions. But He delivers us in and through them. There's a world of difference. God does not promise you that you will come out of the affliction that you're in before you die. He does not promise you that. No matter what you do, that may just be his, his, his plan for you. But he, he supports us with his mighty right hand. But he supplies us with inexhaustible strength in the midst of it. But he stays near us in the valley of the shadow of death. And as he does all of this, what he, what he graciously does is he warms our hearts to not love the world. To not trust in our own understanding, but to trust Him in a way that is full surrender. In a way that peaceful times, listen, when you're on the beach sipping a margarita and like, you know, the band is going and the waves are rolling and it's 72 degrees and it's not as easy oftentimes to just see your need for God. God doesn't always have to use pain to do this. Job was very keenly aware of, of God's grace in his life before the suffering. But he uses affliction. John Piper said on this text, he said, we learn here that the pain that Job's experiencing, and that many of us are in affliction, those who are Christian, the pain is that of a surgeon's knife, not the executioner's sword. It's the surgeon's knife, not the executioner's sword. Because Job said, you're my enemy. And Elihu said, no, 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 no. He loves you. And it's actually through the affliction that you're going to learn that more. God is the good physician and loving caretaker of our soul who cuts us sometimes for our good. And then notice the second half of verse 15. And he opens their ear, those who are afflicted, by adversity. God's gracious hand brings affliction upon us to make us hear his voice in a fresh way. To hear words of comfort from the scriptures. To hear confirmation from the spirit that we are indeed his. 
to be reminded that though we're being taken through the furnace of affliction, it's to refine us and prepare us for that land where there's no more suffering or pain. So I would ask you this morning, are you in affliction? Are you in adversity? Are your ears open? Or do you have your hands over the ears and just saying, why are you doing this to me? I don't want to listen. I don't want to hear what you have to say. You're doing me wrong. None of us are above that. God seems to instruct us most effectively in and through adversity. Psalm 119.71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The psalmist says, The best thing that ever happened to me was that you afflicted me. And I'm not sure what your testimony is, but mine is the exact same. I don't have a tattoo, but if I was going to get one, it might be Psalm 119.17. Or that would be terrible, because that's the wrong verse. 71. That's what happens. That's why you don't get tattoos. You don't know what they mean. Anyway. 2007. 2007. 52 days before my wedding. I was a pastor in Texas. I'd been there for about four years. There was a widow in our congregation who needed some work done at her house, so I went over there and was doing some yard work. While I was doing the yard work, in Texas, whenever you have a bunch of brush, you burn it. So we put the brush, I put the brush together there, and I uh, usually burn with diesel, but I wasn't thinking and just used regular gasoline and put it on, on the brush pile. And that day it was very uh, humid, so all of the fumes stayed right there. So when I lit the match to set the brush pile on fire, um, it ex- exploded, and there was a, a fireball that, that consumed me. And it shook the house of the pe- where I was. The, the, the lady who was with me, she was standing out there with me. It was by God's grace. The gas can was on the ground. There's no reason. It went all the way behind me. There's no reason it didn't explode other than God's mercy. But I turned, and I looked at her. I said, how bad is it, Judy? And she just started crying. She goes, you're going to be okay, which is not a good sign. So the guy who was there, he came out of the house, and he looked at me. He's like, okay, let's, let's go to the hospital. And I got in the car, and while we're driving there, and I could feel my face still burning because my face, my entire face and neck and right arm were consumed with second and third degree severe burns. And the whole way while we were driving, I, I, he was driving, and I was riding, I was praying. I was saying, okay, God, I'm yours. I'm yours. Whatever you want, it's yours. Whatever you want me to do in this, it's yours. I trust you. I trust you. Whatever you want. I wouldn't look at myself in the mirror. I didn't, I didn't want to see. And for those first 30 minutes, I think I was responding about as worshipfully as I could. Until I, I passed out and they, they care-flighted me to the burn ward in Dallas. I was in ICU, knocked out for three days. And the burn ward after that for another week. And I saw other patients who were there who were far worse off than I was. Um, had many visits, letters, and prayers from loved people. My, my now wife was doing wedding invitations from the burn ward for our wedding. And I went home, and as time went on, things began to be exposed in me that I wouldn't have seen, I don't think. 
vanity began to flare up. I didn't know what I would look like. It was a very real face, I was, a very real chest. I always have like a leather face for the rest of my life. I, I thought that might, might be. I, I didn't know. My face was burned off. Uh, I saw in a sinful way my desire for comfort. The daily scrubbing of burn wounds is excruciating pain. And I saw things come out of me in that pain. It was not worshipful. I saw anger come out in me in a way that I had never seen before. How quick to be irritable I was because I was so uncomfortable. Pride. I didn't want to be served or helped. I didn't want anybody helping me. It was pride. Self-pity. Asking God, why me? I mean, I'm a pastor. I was helping a widow. I mean, I don't have a lot on my resume, but, you know, I mean, I was helping a widow. I mean, I'm about to get married. Why would you do this to, to my wife? She's waited and prayed for a husband. Discontentment. God, why'd you have me here in this town? If I hadn't been in this town, which I want to be in anyway. God used that affliction to unearth sin in my heart that had hidden itself until that day. I don't think it was because of those sins that the burning incident happened. Someday we'll find out, but... I certainly know that through that God-ordained incident, it was not an accident. It was an incident that was ordained by the Father that He showed me my sin. God uses pain for His purposes. And in the midst of it, we've got to know that God is not only willing and able, but He is committed to using all things peaceful things and painful things in our lives to complete the good plans that He has for those who are His children. This is the promise that He gives to Christians. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And in chapter 37, we're not going to go through it, but he talks about how God sovereignly orchestrates the weather and how He uses it in all kinds of different ways in, in the world. And what you've got to know and I've got to know and what Elihu was trying to help Job to know is that God is orchestrating everything. Every bit of pain that is happening. And, and we're, we're going to see in a couple weeks that God does restore Job in a way that some of us will never see in this life. But that one day we will see. Now we know in part and then we shall know in full. Now, I want to give, I'm going to give you two promises that we're going to leave with. But before I do, I want to say a word that is not intended to be manipulative, but it's intended to be sobering. If you are not a Christian here this morning, we are really thankful that you're here. We think there's really no better place on the planet for you to be than in a place where you can hear God's words preached with God's people. We'd love to get to know you more and walk with you through this journey of what it means to know God. We're really glad that you're here. But I want, to, I want to say something that is very clear in the scriptures, and it's this. That if you're not a Christian, and, and whether you have a great life or whether you have a tremendously hard life, that tremendously hard life does not justify you before God. And that life does not get better when you die. You can live a very hard life as a non-Christian and then die and stand before 
the holy God of the universe with all of your sins and then be judged for that sin and be under his eternal wrath forever. I do not say that to try to manipulate you to get to make some decision. You're going to see that we're not going to have some altar call at the, at the end where we try and get you to come up. And, but I say that because it's true. And that this, even this, what may be a painful sermon for you to hear, God would use for your good if you would turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Do not try to justify yourself before him, but cling to Jesus by faith. He will forgive your sins and you'll be reconciled with God no matter where you've been or what you've done. But for those who are in Christ, I'm going to give you one promise. If you want the other one, you can ask me later. I'm going to give you one promise. This is the one that I've, I've held to through everything from 2007. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. You can turn there or you can just listen. But Hebrews chapter 12. One promise that I want you to remember and I want to remember afresh in the midst of this trusting God, a promise that I hope will cause us to bring our fingers down from pointing them at God in accusation and lift up hands in worship. If you are a child of God, know this, that God promises you that there is a purpose in your affliction. God promises you that there is a purpose in your affliction. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one that he loves. The Lord disciplines the one that he loves. The word for discipline means instruction, means teaching. It can be either because you've done something wrong or simply because he's teaching you a new lesson. The Lord disciplines the one that he loves. So if you are in affliction this morning, know this. It is an act of love from your heavenly Father. When you suffer as a believer in Christ, you must rest in the truth that your sins are forgiven, and that what is happening to you is not punishment. Now, if you're in sin, and it brings correction, and you see it, repent of it, good. But know, know that there is not wrath coming upon you. It is not punitive. God does not discipline us in the sense that he brings wrath on us. He does not punish us for what Christ has already been punished for. You may use it to correct, but you've got to know that it's a loving correction. That verse 10 has this purpose. They, speaking of earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's an understatement. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. God has a purpose in your pain. It is a means to an end. He's not just doing things haphazardly. There's no bad luck. There's no bad chance. There is a God who is working in your pain. And he's doing it that you might share in his holiness so that we might be more like Jesus might look like Jesus and love like Jesus down deep into our very hearts. And I've used this illustration before, but I I think it's really helpful. It's that of the silversmith. The silversmith, the way that he gets silver to be usable, 
the way that he knows that it's pure is that he, he takes a fire and he puts the raw metal over the fire and he lets it heat up and he melts it. And then the way, the way that the silversmith knows that the metal is pure is that all of the dross is burned off and he can see his reflection in the silver. That is what God is doing in the midst of the circumstances in your life that are heated up. He is exposing abiding sin that the circumstances are swirling around so that we might bring it to Him, that He might burn it out of us, that we might share in His holiness. In verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant. It's never fun. 2007 was the hardest year of my life. But I would not trade it for anything. If you had to remove a year from my life, I, I would fight for 2007. Not just because I married my wife that year, but also because everything else bad happened in that year. Or at least what we would say is bad. Certainly painful. But God uses it for good. A seminary professor once said to our, our class, one of the saddest things I've ever seen is for a Christian to go through the fire of God's furnace and come out looking the same. Listen, you can make it through suffering by just buckling down and making it through and not coming out any different or coming out worse. But what we have to do is take hands that are raised toward God in protest and trying to justify ourselves and bring them down and open them up in surrender and say, God, help me to trust you. Make me look more like Jesus. Teach me. Teach me. And do not do that alone. One of the other promises I was going to share with you is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And the idea I want you to remember is that one of the reasons you become a member of a church is so that you don't have to suffer by yourself. God gives you people who will walk with you through this and pray with you and help you to the end. So may we be a people who trust God and believe that no matter what we face, that He is the one who is justified, not us, and that we can stand trusting Him because of the grace that He has shown us in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray now that You would take a hard word and bring it into our hearts and show us ways that we can apply it. Make us a people who trust you in the midst of the burning and the shaping. God, help us to believe the truths that your word says that you have a purpose for our afflictions, and that it is to conform us to the image of your Son more and more. So, Father, we pray that as circumstances in life that you use to shake up our hearts, and show us abiding sin, that, God, you would put it to death. That you would help us, Lord, to be a surrendered people who realize that we have nothing but Christ and that we would build our hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. In his name we pray.